Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So as we're getting closer to Christmas this year, we are in the Older Testament book of Ruth. Why? Because history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. History rhymes sometimes. And what we have in the book of Ruth is we have some events happening that would lead to the birth of a king, King David. Well, what is Christmas about? It's the events that lead to the birth of a king, and we call him King Jesus. But it's not without its tragedy. The good news also comes through hard times, many times. Uh, Ann Hodges is the only person that it's confirmed, the only person who was ever hit directly by a meteorite, okay? It was in November 1954. She was asleep in her house, taking a nap in her home in Alabama, when a softball-sized chunk of meteorite came right out of the clear blue, through her ceiling, through her roof, I guess it went through the roof and then the ceiling, bounced off the radio, hit her, and left a pineapple-shaped bruise on her leg. I want to continue the story and say she became a superhero after that, but nothing happened. She was just left with a bruise out of the clear blue. Life happens like that sometimes. Out of the clear blue, we're just trying to take a breath, and sometimes a softball-sized something will come and ricochet around until it finds us and sometimes leaves a mark. Well, that's the story of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is minding her own business. She's just trying to get her family to survive. And in the course of this, loses her husband, her two sons. She's left with one daughter-in-law who is loyal, and they come back to Bethlehem not knowing what God is up to or even if God is paying attention. But then sometimes, just as bad things come out of the blue, Sometimes some really good things happen out of the clear blue as well. And Ruth, just trying to survive, to eke out a living, finds herself in the field of Boaz, who is a family protector, and that's where God is working behind the scenes even when you're not sure what He is doing. So I've asked Lindsay this morning to read Ruth chapter 3, and I want to encourage you, keep your heart and mind engaged, don't just phase out. Maybe you do better looking at the Scripture and reading along. Maybe you do better just listening, but engage your imagination. When she's done, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and together we will proclaim thanks be to God. Let's listen to Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. 
Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which were, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured in six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the first biblical example of a blind date. I almost grin. I don't know why I grin when I read the first part of this chapter. It says, uh, wash, put on some perfume, put on your nicest clothes, update your social media profile picture. We want you to look at your best, and Naomi arranges a blind date between Ruth and Boaz. Now, just for a moment, how many of you have ever gone on a blind date before? Raise your hand. How many of you will never go on a blind date again? Hint, if you're married, you better just raise your hand, okay? (laughs) How many of you married the person on your blind date? Hey, I see a couple of hands out there. How many of you are happily married to the person on your blind date? I guess that's the next question I should ask. There you go. I, Glenn and Sally, I didn't know that about you guys. Okay, so I, I really hope that y'all have great marriages to pay off for the pain the rest of us felt on a blind date. Because Naomi, she sees two people. She sees Boaz and Ruth. And she starts to set them up on this blind date because she sees qualities in both that are fantastic that together would be spectacular. That Boaz is a person of integrity. And by the way, we're going to see that today. And Ruth is a person of absolute faithfulness. And she saw these two people are spectacular as individuals. What will they be like if they get together? Okay. What I also notice about Ruth and Boaz here is how different experiences brought out the best in who they were. Actually, Boaz was very wealthy. He was affluent. And in that, his integrity shone forth, okay? Evidently, God blessed him, and his integrity flourished and flowered. But just the opposite, Ruth, poverty brought out the best in who she was. So I don't know what God is doing in your life and who you more associate with, Boaz or Ruth, but can you just trust God enough to know that whatever situation you're in right now, He has orchestrated it so that the best of your personality would be brought out. And I don't mean that as self-help. I mean that as God wants to develop Christ in you. And so He's going to use experiences, sometimes good, sometimes bad, to cause Christ to be formed in us. So whatever situation you're in today, don't complain about it and decide that you're going to use that to become like Christ. Okay. Also, 
Let me give this little thought here. It's so good to admire people like Boaz. And it's so good to admire people like Ruth. You know what's harder? Is to become like those people. It's good to admire. And it's easy to complain about those who aren't. The toughest thing to do is say, whatever situation I'm in right now, I'm going to let Christ, God, bring out the best in me. So Ruth chapter 3, I think, is the most challenging chapter in the whole book of Ruth because it's so steeped in culture. There are so many cultural nuances. These events happened 3,200 years ago, so it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around everything that happens here without understanding that culture. Here's the definition of culture. Culture is the way we do things around here, okay? Uh, Every church has its culture. Every business has its culture. Every home has its culture. It's the way we do things around here. It's something that just seems so natural until you're on the outside looking in. So having lived in different places in the country, I've stepped into different cultures. Now, I was born and raised in West Texas, and this sounds odd. I didn't even think about it growing up. Every year, we had a rattlesnake roundup in West Texas. We had so many snakes, we couldn't give them away. So we round them up, and you can buy snake venom, you can buy snake skin, you can eat snake if you want to. That just seemed to be a part of the culture. It's the way we do things around here. Then I moved from West Texas to Montgomery, Alabama. They weren't focused on snakes there. Instead, they served a demonic dish called grits. (laughs) First time I went to a church breakfast and there was grits. By the way, as a marketing tool, terrible name. What do you want? Grits. I mean, it just sounds terrible, right? They say, well, it tastes better if you put cheese and butter on it. I go, well, no, it doesn't. It, you know, it just tastes like cheese and butter with grits in it is what it tastes like. But people who grew up in the South, that's the way we do things around here. Then I moved to Oklahoma, and you people are weird. I never had tabbouleh until I moved to Tulsa, right? It's a Mediterranean dish that's very popular in the area. And then you go to a place like Ike's Chili, and why you put chili on spaghetti with beans, I have no idea. It struck me as odd as an outsider, but it's the way you do things around here. So we're steeped in culture, and I've used food as an example because really it's it's a pretty good insight to culture. So there are three cultural things that happen in Ruth that Ruth and Boaz knew like the back of their hand. They're not explained, so the readers, the original readers of Ruth, they got it as well, but we're on the outside looking in going, this is as strange as grits to me, right? And so we need to decipher it just a bit. Let me give you a coaching tool here on reading the Scripture. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're reading along and everything's making sense. Doesn't happen very often, does it? Every now and then you read along, okay, I understand this, I understand this, I understand this. Then you come on this part you don't understand. And so what do we often do? We often skip right past that. We go, I don't understand that part. Let me get back to something that I do understand. Let me encourage you, the next time that happens, stop, slow down, dig in. Because the very part you want to skip past is probably the part that has the most to teach if you can just wrap your mind around it. In other words, these little incidents can offer the greatest insights. Okay? So there's three in Ruth chapter 3. First is the threshing floor. All the events that happen from Ruth 3 to the beginning of Ruth 4 happen in one night. Barley harvest is coming in, 
and the events happen on the threshing floor. So get the idea of a barn out of your head. As the barley harvest is coming in, the farmers would go up to a hilltop, okay? Cool breeze would come off the Mediterranean Sea in the evening from about 4 p.m. on. This cool breeze would come in, so they would take the barley harvest, they would crush the stalks of barley, they would then scoop it up, throw it into the air, and the husks would fly away. They would float away because they're lighter, and the grain would come back down to the ground. So they would harvest the grain. They would separate the wheat, the barley, from the chaff using this process. Now, here's what you really need to understand. There were farmers who worked their fields all year long. So why be a farmer if you could just be a raider, right? So you wait till the harvest comes in, and then you go in and steal what all these farmers have done, right? Why work when you can just come in and raid? So, to protect against raiders, the farmers would sleep the night on the threshing floor. They would literally lay down on these stalks or on these piles of grain to protect them. And so, it was a time of security, okay? But also, on the threshing floor, it was a time of celebration. The harvest was coming in. And, and by the way, I'm just telling you what it is. They, they would often be drinking, and there would be partying. There'd be carousing going on. I don't know what carousing is, but it sounds like fun. Yeah. And if women were on the threshing floor, sometimes a party can lead to a bad decision. So it didn't always happen, but with Boaz it did. He said, no women on the threshing floor. That way, as we're giving security over our crops, as we're celebrating because things are good, we alleviate the opportunity of making bad decisions. Now, Boaz was the exception, not the rule. Here's the point of all of that. It took us a roundabout way to get there. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to set some standards of your character. We play too fast and loose with virtues, and we play too fast and loose with vices, and we need to decide what we will or will not allow into our minds, into our souls, into our homes, into our businesses, onto your phone. There are some things we say, they just don't belong. And I don't care what other people consider to be acceptable in culture. Let them do with their threshing floor what they want to. But here, we will preserve integrity. It's frustrating because we look around and really if you try to discern a Christian from the culture around us, we look very much like culture most of the time, and we shouldn't. We should have different values, different things that we hold dear, things we don't allow in and things that we hold on to for dear life. We are called to be, as Jesus followers, people of integrity. I guess one thing I would say to you today is, what's one thing that you got going on in your life that you would be better off without and you'd be more obedient to Jesus without. Maybe it's a toxic relationship. Maybe it's excessive debt. Maybe it's what you're looking at on your computer. Maybe it's the way you do conflict around your house. We are called to be people of integrity, regardless of what's happening in culture. All that from a threshing floor. Then, as Ruth, excuse me, as Boaz has had a little too much, he's laying on the pile of wheat, okay? He's being a security guard, probably not the best security guard in the world, but he's laying there, okay? Hey, I'm just telling you as it is. This is the story. 
And Ruth goes into the threshing floor where she's not allowed. And here's the second cultural thing. She uncovers his feet, okay? So I asked my wife to model this around the house. Would you just lay at my feet during the evening? She did not want to do this at all, okay? That was a bad joke. I did not plan to say that. It just came out. Now can I reel that back and take that back? I will ask her that tonight. But no, I, no enough. Let's go on. I'm trying to be funny up here. This is such serious stuff, right? I don't know how to get out of this hole. I guess I just keep on going, right? <laughs> so she uncovers his feet. Now, in the Older Testament, to uncover the feet is actually a euphemism for sex. So one way to read this is that things kind of go south pretty quickly here, but actually that's not what happens. The Bible has no problem telling us the flaws and foibles of our heroes. But here, instead of a euphemism, it literally is she uncovered his feet. She moved his shawl aside, his cloak aside for two reasons. Number one, it would wake him up. His feet would get cold. Number two, as he woke up, Ruth put herself in a position for Boaz to ask her to marry him. It was a symbol in the ancient world. When a man covered a woman with his cloak, it was a symbol of, you now fall under my protection. And so she put herself in a position for him to propose marriage. Now, here's where I'm going to go with this, and this is going to seem a little odd, but if you did the reading this week, as we're doing two chapters of the Bible every week, you came across this. Ruth happens in the same period as the judges. And among the judges was one named Deborah. And this, these events happened under Deborah's time as judge. There was a war criminal named Sisera, bad dude. He's fleeing. He runs into the tent of a woman named Jael. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. She gives him something to drink. Sisera falls asleep, and Jael, with this war criminal in her tent, takes a tent peg and a hammer and finishes him off. The exact wording used in Judges chapter 4, that wording is the exact same wording used here in Ruth chapter 3. In other words, it was a culture of violence where if somebody was vulnerable, you took advantage of the opportunity while you still had it. Not that what J.L. did was wrong, but it was violent. The writer of Ruth uses exactly the same words that Ruth approached Boaz with stealth. But instead of doing him in, she asked for marriage. Instead of approaching in violence, she approached in love. So, what does all that mean for us? What do people feel like when they see you coming? <laughs> you might call yourself a Christian. You might call yourself a follower of Jesus. But when people see you coming, do they trust you? Do they cringe a little bit not knowing what you're going to say or what you want or how you're going to take advantage of them? Do people trust you? Listen, you're going to be hard-pressed to call yourself a follower of Jesus. You're going to be hard-pressed to say, I love God, if you don't love other people and if other people don't trust you. You know what? I would encourage you to talk to your spouse, talk to your kids, talk to your coworkers, talk to your friends, and read the room on how you come across. Listen, this is a fruit of being a follower of Jesus that we don't take advantage of other people. And in fact, we approach them in love and compassion. Now, there's one more little cultural note here, and it's that of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz wakes up, sees Ruth. He wants to spread his cloak over her and to bring her into a marriage relationship, but then he uses a phrase that is 
is a little bit of a double entendre. Boaz himself didn't even know what he was completely saying, and we wouldn't understand it until later in the New Testament. He goes, I am a kinsman redeemer, but there is someone who is even closer than I. There's a kinsman redeemer that's even closer. Now, he was talking literally about another kinsman redeemer, another guardian redeemer that had the first right of refusal. But Boaz, I believe, is also referring to God, somebody who watches over all of us that is closer than we can possibly understand. I feel prompted this morning to say something to men. Women, I'm not counting you out of this equation, but I need to have a word with the men for just a moment, if you'll allow me. Men, we hold the value of family. Our family comes first. And by the way, wives, I want you to overhear this because maybe this is something your husband will not tell you, but I'll tell you. We have this value of family, and as men, we're to be providers. We are to be the guardian redeemer over our family. We're to provide everything that's needed. Yet at the same time, we can be over a family but feel incredibly alone. In fact, some men have expressed this exact sentiment to me. The only time somebody talks to me is when they want something. Man, I don't know if you felt like that, but I'm, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts I have no idea what that phrase means, but I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that men somewhere on the inside feel very much alone because the only time their spouse or their kids or their grandkids talk to them is when they need to provide something. Men, I will say this to you. There's no easing that tension. We, we are called to provide. We are called to oversee. We are called to lead our families. But if you hadn't figured this out yet, you can't do it alone. You need a guardian redeemer that is even closer, somebody who watches over you as you watch over your family. I'll also say this to kids and, and spouses in the room, and it, it might be opposite in your family. It, it may be the female is, is the breadwinner. I'm taking this both ways, but whoever's responsible, would you talk to them sometime and just not ask for anything and just express love and appreciation? That will go further than you could ever possibly understand. But if you're responsible for leading a family, you need to know that there's a kinsman redeemer even closer than you. So culture is the way we do things around here. We've talked about the threshing floor. We've talked about uncovering the feet. We've talked about the guardian redeemer. Let me talk about our own culture for just a minute. Here's the way we do things around here. In early 21st century America, we have become cultural Christians. Meaning, I want salvation, but without sanctification. I, I want to go to heaven, but I don't really want to become like Jesus. I want to go to heaven, but I really don't want to sacrifice anything. I want to go to heaven, I want salvation, but I, I really don't want to live a selfless life. I want the icing, but I don't want to have to do all the work. COVID has revealed that's the way we do things around here. And I'm not calling you to question your salvation. I'm asking you today just to take a good look at your character. And if I were to say something like this or ask you to say something like this to yourself, we often talk about putting our faith in Jesus. Let's replace the word faith with a different word that's a synonym that we give our loyalty to Jesus. So if you were to say to yourself, 
I am loyal to Jesus. Hmm. When you say that, do you note the hypocrisy? Because your priorities and the way you live really doesn't resemble anything that Jesus calls you to be loyal to. Or do you say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but that is my intent. I'm striving every day to be more loyal to Jesus. I think it's going to show up in the way that we manage our threshing floors in the way that we adopt or ignore integrity. I think it's going to show up in the way that we treat people. Again, if you say you love Jesus, don't tell me you love Him. Show me by how you treat other people in your life. And then loyalty to Jesus looks like I'm always leaning on the guardian redeemer who is closer than I could ever ask or imagine or guess or request. Loyalty. Where is it today? Honestly, the way we do things around here, most of us are just loyal to ourselves. Let's be honest. That's our culture. But Christ nowhere invites us to be a cultural Christian. He invites us to be a convictional Christian. A conviction is not something that we hold. It's something that holds on to us. So I want to see this last picture of Ruth 3. As Boaz wakes up, he talks to Ruth. There's a redeemer. There's a kinsman redeemer closer than I. I don't want you to go back to Naomi empty-handed, and he takes six measures of barley and puts it in her shawl for her to carry back. Now, whenever you get this big story like this and a very specific detail, I mean, why does the writer say six measures of barley? There's something to that detail. I looked for everything about the symbolism of the number. I don't think that's it. Boaz gave Ruth all that she could possibly carry. Six measures of barley was about 80 or 90 pounds of wheat. That's a lot. But it's about the limit of what one person can carry. And there's a picture here because if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, Naomi says, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Now Boaz says, don't go back to Naomi empty. Go back full. And boy, is there a picture here. Ruth goes back in the early morning light with a shawl of grain she is carrying seed right in front of her where a womb should be. That's a big old hint right there that in her is the seed of something good that would ultimately lead to King David. Oh, and by the way, would ultimately lead to Jesus. Henrietta Mears was a rather eclectic follower of Jesus, rather eccentric. On her deathbed, she was asked if she had any regrets. She said this, I wish I had trusted God more. I don't know what your regret is going to be on your deathbed, but I'm willing to wager that probably as most of us look back and see the grand scope of our life, that we would say, I wish I had trusted God more. And maybe we would even say, I wish my loyalty had been more to Jesus. Well, you don't have to wait to your deathbed. Why don't you tell yourself that now? And to have an uncompromising loyalty to Jesus, come what may, and see what kind of filling of you that he might do. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. So God, I don't know exactly what you're doing in this room. I I know what you're doing with me. You're, You're challenging my cultural Christianity, that my Christianity is something that I practice only when it's convenient or only when it doesn't conflict with the values of my surrounding culture. Well, 
following you is never really all that convenient. And following you is going to conflict with what everyone else says is right or wrong. So would you help us to be people of integrity, people of love, people who are seeking after you? And come what may, may our loyalty be to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just work in this room, work in our hearts, and you do what you want to. It's in your name that we offer our prayer. Amen. So usually on Sundays we open up the follow-up room. I'm not going to do that right now. We'll wait and do that here in just a moment. But I, I want to ask you just to, to take this one question. As we sing and respond, I want you to just to say this one phrase. At some point, say it out loud to yourself. I am loyal to Jesus. One or two things are going to happen. You're going to say, yep, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying the best I can. Or that is not true of me at all. So just somewhere in the song, just say, I'm loyal to Jesus. See what response there is to that. And then say, God, what do I need to do about that? We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Stand before God. Let's worship him together. Jeff, would you lead us? Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace both now and forever. Amen.